anyone needs prayed for on the way home, pray for me. Because uh, right before church, for those of you who don't know, right before church, I had to run home to grab my guitar. Uh, and, and on the way back, uh, I had a couple couple interesting situations, right? So at one point, I was coming up 31, to, and all of a sudden, I look behind me, and the back of my car is an oncoming traffic lane. I didn't know how it happened. It just ended up back there. And so I turned the wheel, and, I'm, and now at this point, I'm going back and forth. So I go from immediately worrying about the car coming towards me to I'm going to take out this mailbox, or back and forth. Uh, and finally, I got it straightened out by the providence of God. And, uh, and I said, okay, we're good. Almost to church now. And so uh, coming up on this intersection here, I kind of uh, hit the brakes and I start to slow down. And it turns out uh, I kept on going through the intersection. Uh, luckily for me, there's a little uh, gravel parking lot there that I was able to catch that exit instead. Uh, so I turned off in there and then I said, okay, I've made it to church, Lord, let's go. So I'm coming up 347 here. I said, okay, I'm going to hit this first turn. And luckily we have three turn-ins because I missed the first one. <laughs> I wasn't going fast. I, I, I don't know how it happened. Uh, but luckily, we made it here. So I'm going to preach for about another 28 minutes. Uh, and we're going to go home safely. But I want to say, just for real quick, like, that there's something about the power of habit, isn't there? Right, right. There's something, from, there's something about like entering into doing the same routine and, and that being a good thing. Now, we're going to see in a minute from our text this morning, that can often be a bad thing. But as I've been reflecting over the last few weeks, right, of not preaching and, uh, and the first two weeks of the year, just not even being here at all, like, even as a pastor, right, it's, there's something about, like, like, once you kind of get out of that habit and out of that routine, it kind of, like, breaks your motivation. Anybody with me here? Am I by myself? Uh, so this morning, is, uh, you know, I was texting the, 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 the deacons saying, like, all right, like, I want to have church, but just so you know, snowpocalypse is on its way, so what do you want to do? And they said, let's have church. Um, but there's something about it, right, of the power of, of just continuing to plug in, continuing to press forward, because how many, okay, let's just, let me break this down. I'm going to get to the text in a minute. How many of you have ever had a day, man, I just need to rest? I just need to sit on the couch and, and not do anything. Now, how many of you have ever done a day like that? About 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so like, this is COVID a few weeks ago for me, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm just like, man, I've been resting all day and I still feel like trash. Like, I just feel weak and like, I look down at my watch and it tells me how, how much of a bum I am. It says, you've walked three steps today. I'm like, gosh. <laughs> like, like, there's something about just like getting up and, and being active that actually feeds back into the motivation loop to continue on. That's not even in my notes. Uh, Mark chapter 1, chapter 6, sorry. Uh, the power of habit and, and, and how that affects motivation. So as you plan out 2022, uh, plan to be part of the gathering of the church body weekly. Plan on doing it weekly. Make up in your mind that you're going to commit to this thing called church for the rest of the year and for really for the rest of your life. Now, Mark, we're going to, Mark chapter 6, I love the gospel of Mark. As a matter of fact, I started preaching through it, um, and I got through like four or five chapters uh, when I first got here and found out that the previous pastor had just done this like less than a year prior. Uh, and so we went from Mark to, to Genesis, and we preached through the book of Genesis, and then we uh, did Advent, and then uh, Colossians, you'll remember, the book of Ruth, couple series in between there, and, and now we're back in the New Testament book of the book of Mark, where we'll be for the next 13, 14 weeks until May. And, and I love 
the Gospel of Mark and how Mark writes, right? Because Mark writes differently than every other Gospel writer. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and Mark stands alone because he, here's the question that Mark asked throughout the whole book. It's this, who is Jesus? Now Mark the writer never gives an answer to that question, but he writes his stories in such a way, and he's basically per, you know, stringing together these narratives, these stories of interactions with Jesus and how others view Jesus. And that's how he kind of writes it. So I just love it because he's telling us who Jesus is by the reactions of how others actually view Jesus. Right? There's this, the, the scholars and the theologians would say that Mark chapter 8 is the turning point in the whole gospel. Right, so Mark chapter 8, at the end of the, near the end of the chapter, it says this. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's the middle of the book. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, this is interesting, right? Because the whole book is about this question, who is Jesus, and in the middle of the book, chapter 8, he asks his disciples, who am I? And Peter answers, you're the Christ, right? The, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who's come to, to fix the mess. And then from there on, you can tell if you read the, Mark, the book of Mark that there's a distinct change in the way Jesus does ministry. He he's, then begins, the very next verse, he says, he begins to tell them about the things that are to come, right? He's speaking of his death and resurrection, but our text this morning, if you're there with it, look at Mark 6, verse 1. We're going to read it again. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So the background, we read it this morning, right? The chapter, most of chapter 5. Uh, like, so here's, what's, here's what we're walking into this morning, Mark chapter 6. Jesus has just performed miraculous things, right? He's on a boat with his disciples, about to go down, and then he calms the storm. Like, think about it. A man speaks to the snow, and it stops snowing. A man speaks to the clouds to open up, to let the sunlight in, and it happens. They'd never seen anything like this. This is incredible. Who is this man? They asked themselves. He then goes on to cast out demons out of a man. And, and again, all of these stories, it's people reacting to Jesus, and they're either uh, they're responding to him, and they affirm it like, this is awesome, or they're sitting back wondering, who does this guy think he is? He heals a woman with a blood disease. And the interesting thing about that woman is she had dealt with it and no other man could cure her, right? No physician could give her the right antidote or the right vaccine. She needed a touch from the Lord. And listen, she had faith and merely touched the hem of his garment and was healed. And then he, not only did he do that, but he also raised this little girl from the dead. 
This is mind-blowing things, right? This is actually what we as Westerners struggle with, right? All of Mark, right? We struggle with the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because we are highly enlightened, aren't we? Like, ah, well, you know, did he really have demons? You know, did he really calm the storm or that it just happened to happen that right? We struggle with the miraculous, that, that God could, uh, could change the natural order. Not that we, we, we think that he can, right? We're Christians. We believe the Bible. Like, we think that God can do that. We just don't actually believe that he will. And now he returns to his hometown, right? Nazareth. Not where he was born, but where he was raised. Uh, it's, here's a few facts about Nazareth. Uh, less than 500 people. Uh, and, and Nazareth, as, like, listen, as a city, as a small town, it occupied no more than 60 acres. I'm looking at some of you, some of you probably own like 60 acres. A whole town, 60 acres, Nazareth. And so Jesus heads back home. This is interesting. This is a, one of the ways you can read Mark is that oftentimes he shifts the scenery, and that's how you know there's been a shift in the approach and what he's writing about, the focus, uh, he, he shifts the scenery. So before he's, Jesus, uh, chapter 5 and, and forward, he's in Capernaum, right? He's uh, in Galilee, he's doing miracles there, but now he returns home. Unsure why, text doesn't tell us, but he heads to where he grew up. And not only that, but he heads to the synagogue, as was his custom on the Sabbath day. And he, he enters into what he does best, doesn't he? he? He begins to teach the people. Now, this is, this is interesting, right? Here's this, this man, grew up in a small town, probably about the size of Broadway, as you can think about it. Uh, goes off, does some crazy stuff, and then comes back home, and he, he comes into a church much like this, and he gets up on the pulpit and begins to teach. And we say, now that's weird. Pastor, you're not going to let anyone do that from Broadway, are you? Because I know the folks in Broadway. They're crazy. No, no, like, like in their day, uh, the rap, like this was, this was common practice, that, that any man could stand up and read and describe and teach the laws. As a matter of fact, the rabbis encouraged it. So for all the arguments against church today, right, against like what we're doing today, right, like I'm the only one up here speaking, like we're not engaged in dialogue, right? Like now sometimes I like it when you dialogue, like when you say amen to a good point. Like, I like that, but it's not, it's not dialogue. This is a, a monologue. It's all the arguments against church today and against the preaching of the Word of God today, it's interesting that this was Jesus' modal operandum, right? This is how he engaged. Our people today, we say things like, ah, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. That's true. Some of you might be sitting in this room today, not Christian. And so they say, well, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, so you need to go be the church, right? That's what they say. Go be the church out in the community. Go do good deeds. Now, listen, I love good deeds. I think we should be helping the poor, visiting orphans and widows, right, taking care, pushing back the darkness in our communities. But to, to do that at the expense of understanding the Scriptures, of having the Scriptures expounded to us, we miss what Jesus was all about. Do you remember back in Mark chapter 1? Why Jesus came, he said he came. Mark chapter 138, he says this. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. So the reason Jesus came, right? The reason Jesus showed up in all these towns and all these villages was not necessarily to heal people. He did that. 
But that wasn't his primary goal. Like He wasn't primarily about just healing people's physical ailments. He wasn't about just giving a cup of water to the thirsty, though he did do that. His primary goal, his primary motivation was to preach the word. And so this is what Jesus does. That's what he did. He stood up. He began to teach the scriptures. Now, Mark doesn't tell us here what scriptures he was expounding or talking about. But I think Luke, the gospel, tells us when he goes back home and begins to teach in the synagogues, right, he's opening Isaiah. And he says, and these scriptures, these scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing today, right? And now notice the people's reactions. The people were astonished. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, many who heard him were astonished. The people were astonished. Now this word astonished this is a normal word throughout the Gospel of Mark and really all the Gospels as a way of people reacting to Jesus. They were amazed, perplexed. They sat back in their chairs as Christ was teaching. They couldn't believe their ears. Their minds were blown. But these people, their astonishment was not because their minds were blown with the good news of God's glorious grace. They said, well, what were they amazed at? What were they astonished at? Their astonishment was at the fact of who it was that was delivering this good news. You see, the people were astonished because they knew him. They knew Jesus. Look what they say. They said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty words done by his hands? Now, it's, it's, we need to know that these aren't real questions. Like They weren't like, man, like, Jesus, how did you get so awesome? These were rhetorical questions. They didn't want an answer. They said, this can't be true. Look what they say in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? You see, they, we, we know you, Jesus. We, we know who you are. Carpenter. You know, the one who would build things with his hands. It's known that Joseph was also probably a, you know, a builder. Now, carpenter here in the Greek can mean uh, builder with wood or stone. And it's most likely both because these carpenters in their days, these builders in their days would build anything from uh, huts to uh, the, the yokes that the oxen wore, right? They would build anything. They said, this can't be. Ha. Jesus is just a builder. That's all he is. We know him. We watched him grow up here for 30 years can't be true. And think about it. Think about, how many, show of hands, how many of you live in the hometown you grew up in? Quick show of hands. Couple. All my Marian folks. Couple. How many of you have friends that have left? Like, so from high school, they went, moved elsewhere, done something else. Now, imagine for a moment that that friend came back and started talking like, you know, I'm just so great now. I've done so many amazing things. You're like, Psh, I know you. You're the guy who was fishtailing his car on the way to church. Like, I know you don't know how to drive. Like, I know you. You're just a builder, Jesus, is what they were saying. They're saying, this guy, who does he think he is? But notice that there's a little bit of ridicule thrown in here as well. Look what it says. It says, it's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary. Now, in that day, Jewish people always referred to men by who their fathers were. Where's that in the text? 
Isn't this Jesus, the son of Mary? You see, what they were doing was not just saying who his mother was. They was like, hey, didn't, didn't Joseph just, like, Joseph's not the dad, right? We know. We know who you are, Jesus. <laughs> Come on, we, the whole story, your mom, virgin, yeah, right. You see the ridicule thrown in here. They didn't believe their ears. This is just a builder. He's just a, a man who we don't even know who his father is. Not only that, but he, they say, isn't, like, doesn't he have brothers and sisters? How can he be the Messiah? How can he do all these great things if his brothers and sisters here? And by the way, his brothers and sisters didn't even believe what they said. Remember Mark 3, 21? When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, Jesus. But they were saying, he's out of his mind. His family didn't believe him. Just the builder. Not sure who your dad is. Your own brothers and sisters don't believe you. The people were astonished because they, renewed, they knew Jesus and they rejected him. Look at verse 3. The end of verse 3. He says, they took offense at him. The people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus. The word used here in the Greek, skandalizome, the noun version of that form is scandalon. The word translated scandalon into English is scandal. The people, when they heard Jesus speaking, and they knew who Jesus was because he had grown up around them, they were scandalized by Jesus. They wanted no part of what Christ had to offer because they thought he was a fake. As a matter of fact, they were embarrassed by him. This guy, can you believe it? They, were reject, they rejected him. The same word used here is the same word used of a, of a building stone that was rejected, right? In those days, they would go down into the quarries or where the rocks were, and they would begin to look through the stones for, for building a building, and they would look at it, they would look for the strongest stone, the, the, the biggest stone, the, the, the best stone that they could for the building, and whatever they didn't like, they rejected. They threw it out. They said, this is not good enough. This, we need the best materials. Jesus himself is seen as the rejected stone in Scripture. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Like, like Christ is the cornerstone. He is the rejected stone that we have built our faith on. And his own hometown didn't believe it. They were offended by it. They were embarrassed by it. They were scandalized by it. This leads somewhere, right? You see, because in the beginning of the sermon, I, I talked about the power of habit and just continuing to, to come, be committed to something, and just getting into a routine with that. But what happens in that, if we're not careful, is that familiarity leads to dullness. And so the question for us today is, how do we feel about Jesus? How do you feel about Christ, right? This is interesting, isn't it? Because the, we think that the more time we spend with something, the more time that we get to know something, the, my, the more we might actually enjoy it, or the more respect we might have for it. But what this text is telling us is that they grew up with Christ, they've seen Christ all their life, and now he's going to come and say he's the Messiah, and do all these wonderful things. They say, get out of town. No way. We know you. And if we're not careful, 
we can spend all of our days in church. All of our days reading scripture. And listen, we can become bored with Christ. We can become bored. Like he came into the city with his 12 disciples, it tells us in verse 1, right? After doing all these amazing miracles, and they said, Psh, no way. They became bored with Christ. Listen, when you read the scriptures, when you hear the scriptures preach, when you sing and worship to God, what happens in your heart? You're like, man, not this song again. I hate this song. Oh man, not the not the scriptures again, Pastor. Some of you might be here at church today because you have been dragged by your family. Some of you may be coming out of habitual dedication and yet still not moved in your affections of who Christ is. Listen, familiarity leads to dullness. So what was Christ's reaction? Here's Christ. Immediately after doing these great works and preaching the news abroad, he comes home and is there rejected. And notice what he, he says to them. In verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Right? This is an ancient Jewish adage. Right? Like they've been saying this for a while and Jesus just repeats it. He says the, the idea is that, that you might be liked everywhere else but not in your hometown. Like you might have respect in your, in your work environment and come home to no respect. It's like, that's like, like we, we feel this, don't we? Like, like we feel that like, man, people love me. And I come home to all of y'all and you guys, come on. Don't you know who I am? All the prophets that have gone before, right? Rejected. Dismissed out of hand. That's what Jesus is saying is happening here. He said, you, you, I, I've lived here for three decades, and you've missed who I am. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few people, a few sick people, and healed them. Now, this verse has caused more theological troubles for me over the last ten years than, than a lot of other verses. I've read this verse differently over the years, and it's important to understand what is Christ saying here? What, like, what, what is he saying? What isn't he saying? What does he mean? You see, here's what we know for sure. The same miracles that Christ did in Capernaum, he could have done in Nazareth. Right, right, like the, the power of God did not leave him because of these people's unbelief. Like the, the power still was in his garments, right? Had the woman been in uh, Nazareth instead of Capernaum, like she could have crawled up, touched his garment, and still been healed. So there's nothing that's changed on Jesus' end. What is it that's changed? It's their belief. It's their belief. They didn't believe who he said he was. They didn't believe he had the power he said he had. Now, this is important. This is one of the most foundational doctrines to all of Christianity. Here it is. Faith cures dullness induced by familiarity. Faith cures dullness induced by familiarity. Right? So the question of how do you come to church week in, week out, and not grow bored with it? Listen, you have faith in what's actually being taught. 
It's vitally important to understand the Christian faith, right? Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Like, you've got to understand. It's not in the act of coming to church that all of a sudden you're a Christian. That's true. It's not in the act of doing good deeds for others that you become a Christian. That's true. Listen, you have to have faith and what's being taught, and in the scriptures, and who Christ says he is, that's what makes you a Christian, right? You need to take a step of faith. Now listen, that can go wild in all kinds of theological directions, right? But like, here's what it means by you need to take a step of faith, right? Because growing up, I grew up in a church that said, yeah, 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 take a step of faith, just believe. And what they meant by that is like, don't worry about all the hard questions. Don't worry about how to reconcile different things. Just, just believe. Like, like, don't worry about that, just believe. Right? Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if we can't see Christ, like, he's not here. Like, you didn't grow up with him. But we have the scriptures, and so the question is, do we believe the scriptures? Do we have faith in the scriptures? You see, one of the things of not engaging in church and, and continuing to, to, to disassociate, to continue to be embarrassed by Christ and by his followers that you begin to think, maybe I never believed it to begin with. Like, like maybe, maybe it was all a lie. That's why Jesus is so adamant, that's why the scriptures are so adamant about continuing to walk with him, continuing to draw near to him. Jesus was astonished. Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. Just as the people were astonished at Jesus, Jesus was astonished at the people. Question. Why was Jesus astonished? Well, the text tells us that he was astonished because of their unbelief. But here's a, a question for, uh, for us today. Didn't he deal with unbelief everywhere? Like, weren't the Pharisees and the Sadducees, weren't they all at the end of every story, like in the background, being like, this guy's a fool. Isn't God sovereign? Don't the scriptures teach that God knows who all will be saved? So Christ goes into the city, knows no one's going to repent, no one's going to come to faith. So then why then is Jesus astonished? Why is Jesus astonished? You see, John chapter 6 would tell us that, 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 every, that the Father knows who are his, and he's going to give those into Jesus' hand, and Jesus says, I will uh, continue to do my Father's will. I will never uh, lose one of them, but raise them up on the last day. So then, what, Jesus, why are you astonished? Shouldn't you know this is going to happen? What we need to understand in order to understand this section right here is to understand Mark. Because Mark is not writing to say that Jesus is surprised that there are people who do not believe the gospel. He's not surprised about that. But he is rather surprised and astonished at the depth of their unbelief. You see, with unbelief comes hostility. Those who do not believe in Christ will grow to hate him. Those who do not believe in Christ will grow to hate them. Listen, you can be in church your entire life and still hate Jesus. 
Familiarity breeds contempt, right? Like familiarity leads to dullness. Like because you've been here today, because you've been in church for some time perhaps, like you've heard the gospel and the danger that can happen is your ears become dulled. You don't hear it anymore. So the question is, why didn't they believe Him? Why did they not trust Him? Why did they not believe His words? Why did they not understand that He alone has the words of life? Listen, those of you who don't believe today, why do you not believe? What is it inside of you that keeps you from believing? Listen, let me flip the question. Christian, if you name Christ as your Savior, why do you believe Christ? Was it because a compelling argument was made for you? Was it because you had an emotional experience one time when you were a teenager? Is it because you repeated words after a pastor at an altar? No! That's not why you're a Christian. Listen, if you believe Christ, it's because God has given you a new heart and has removed the blinds from your eyes so that you can truly see who Christ is. Listen, they didn't believe who Jesus was for the same reason your unbelieving neighbors don't believe who Jesus is. It's because God has not done a work in their hearts of opening their eyes. God had passed judgment on Nazareth here. His familiarity led to deeper and deeper hostility towards Christ. And so the question for us today is, will we be bored or offended because of Christ? Like when you're out in public square, when you're with your friends, and are you a Christian? Or do you just kind of hide that back here? Are you offended by who Jesus is and the things that Jesus said? Do you try to take what the Scriptures plainly say and try to rework them to fit within your narrative worldview? Are you offended by Christ? Like the, the amazing thing about Romans 1.16, right? The, the gospel summed up, right? He says, Paul says, I am not ashamed, right? Like that's ultimately what the Christian faith is. Just, I am not ashamed of the power of Christ. Are you, Christian? Are you ashamed? Unbeliever? Do you realize that the God who you are offended by is offended by you? We've all broken His law. We've all broken His commandments. The question is, how are we made right? And what will keep us, once we've entered into Christ, what will keep us from growing bored or offended? What keeps us from growing, uh, having disdain for Christ and for His Scriptures is, listen, it's faith in Christ. Continued over the expanse of your life. Let's pray. Father God, as the musicians come, Father God, we pray. Lord, that we would search our own hearts, Father. And that we would understand that we are not saved on anything that we've done. But, Father, we are saved simply because you have reached your hand into our hearts and replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, Father. Lord, you have given us new life, and that's the only thing that separates us from unbelievers. And so, Father, we pray for the unbelievers in here today. Father, we pray that you would be the one who would give them new life. We pray for the unbelievers in our homes or in our neighborhoods, Father, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the glory of the gospel of Christ, Father, Lord, that you would engage, Father, 
with them. And we pray that for those of us who are in Christ, that we would not grow bored, we would not grow offended because of the culture around us and who they think Christ is. But Father, Lord, we would know you more, that we would dive into you more to, 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 to know who you are, Father, from the Scriptures, not from our own imagination, but from the Scriptures, Father, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. Father, because that alone is what keeps us rooted in Christ. It's that ongoing faith. So Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us and challenge us this week as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand? We're going to sing uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Let's do the, uh, the first verse and the third verse.